my name is Bryn Spencer and I am your host. I'm so glad to have you here today because I'm going to be talking about one of my favorite bread things, yeast. Now, let me be frank and hit you with a controversial opinion right off the bat. I hate mushrooms. I do, I hate mushrooms. They taste gross, they've got a gross texture, they just exist to consume decayed things. I don't know, I don't know. On one hand, I find them fascinating because it's an undead plant that sucks the remaining life out of decayed things to upcycle it into poison, which sounds wonderfully morbid. And also some mushrooms are cute, but on the other hand, they taste like rubber. They do, so I don't like them. Luckily though, yeasts are not mushrooms, even though they are technically a type of fungi. If you've ever seen a yeast out of a package, you know that they look like really, really tiny gold grains, uh, so small that they seem closer to a microorganism really like bacteria than mushrooms. In fact, most yeast looks absolutely nothing like fungi, mushrooms, and they don't absorb nutrients either. They just kind of exist. For brewing, baking, and cooking purposes, there are many varieties of both commercially sold and wild strains of yeast. Uh, have you ever been at the supermarket and seen that yellow powder on organic grapes or plums? Or if you are near orchards, you might notice a layer of white or yellow dust on the leaves of plants nearby. It could be pollen in the spring, but more likely it's wild yeast that was floating in the air and happened to settle on the plants. That's because most wild yeast are airborne and float around until they settle on something to feed off of and grow on. And yeasts are everywhere, and I do mean everywhere. They float in the air, grow on plants and dirt and on our skin, and they settle on surfaces all around. They're part of our natural environment. Wild yeasts vary from region to region. All native yeasts are different in one form or another, which is why some graphic, uh, geographical regions have foods that taste very distinct. That's actually one of the reasons why San Francisco sourdough is so iconic, and why a New York bagel is so legendary. Part of the reason has to do with what cultures of yeast are in the air and in the bread. We even inhale them. Just like anything else in the air, we do inhale yeast. And to answer that million dollar question that I'm sure you're all thinking, are yeasts alive? Yeah, they are. They are alive. Uh, they're microorganisms and function a lot in the same way that bacteria do. They're alive in the same way that bacteria is alive, limitedly. Now, there are thousands of strains of wild and commercial yeast for baking and brewing, but we refer to them by only one general term for the species, the Saccharomyces cerevisiae. Now, if you're someone who knows Latin pronunciation, and I butchered that, I do apologize. It's not my area of expertise. Anyway, uh, so we only have that one term because there are so many strains of yeast that it's way too hard to keep track, and also they pretty much all behave in the same way. We've had some vague ideas about how yeast worked for the past, you know, thousands and thousands of years, but not on a microscopic level until a couple hundred years ago. And not knowing that wasn't a big deal because we had bakers and brewers who had been cultivating it for generations and knew how to manipulate it really well. But then, but then, in 1857, when the microscope had long been invented, we could take a closer look at what yeast actually does. And the scientist Louis Pasteur, who is the French microbiologist and inventor of the first rabies vaccine, an impressive pedigree, uh, he, just, he did just that. And it was he who first discovered that yeast is actually a living organism, albeit a small one. 
and is what is responsible for fermentation in bread and beer. That brings me to my second point. What is fermentation and how does yeast do that? How does it do it? It's actually pretty straightforward. The dictionary definition of fermentation is, quote, the chemical breakdown of a substance by bacteria, yeasts, or other microorganisms, typically involving effervescence and the giving off of heat, end quote. Those were a lot of words, so let me break it down. Specifically in alcoholic fermentation, which is the kind specific to beer, bread, wine, etc., fermentation is simply the process of yeast feeding off of starches and sugars of the flour in the dough or the starter, or if it's alcohol, the sugars in the grains in the fruit, and producing CO2 or alcohol as waste. In a starter and later in the dough when we're talking about bread, the CO2 gas gets trapped and then causes the gluten proteins to activate and expand which causes the bread to get bigger and rise. Excess CO2 or moisture in the environment is what results in those bubbles in the bread. That's why some breads are baked in an oven alongside boiling water, because that steam creates extra pockets of air that makes the bread lighter and fluffier. And don't fret, that CO2 isn't bad for you. Eventually, it gets released and dissipates into the air, leaving you with a beautiful risen loaf of bread. It's simplified, but that's the process. Pretty cool, huh? There are other types of fermentation that are natural biological processes as well. There's also lactic acid fermentation, which utilizes bacteria and results in things like curd and some kinds of cheese. Um, for example, when you leave out milk for too long, like you leave it out on the counter and it spoils, that's actually a type of fermentation gross, but it's a type of fermentation. Of course, there's also alcoholic fermentation, which is what produces wine, beer, spirits, as well as some types of biofuel, oddly enough, um, and of course bread. Can't forget that. Um, lastly, there's acetic acid fermentation that oxidizes ethyl alcohol with bacteria and then creates vinegars. So any kind of vinegar, that's a product of acetic acid fermentation. Fermentation is also a natural preservative, which is why pickling things and fermenting fruits to preserve them have been really popular and useful throughout history. So that's fermentation. Okay, let's talk about different types of yeast and what they're used for, because there are quite a few different types of commercial yeast used in baking, and it's important to know when to use what and why. So there is cooking, brewing, and baking yeast, but I'm just going to be talking about cooking and baking because brewing is definitely not my area of expertise. I don't want to mess anything up or give you any wrong information, so I'm just going to refrain from commenting on that too much. Um, so let's start off with cooking yeast. There are two types, one of them being nutritional yeast, which is a deactivated form of yeast, meaning that it's no longer alive and kicking or kicking out CO2 and usually serves as a nutritional additive. It's very high in vitamin B and other nutrients and minerals, and apparently has a cheesy or nutty flavor. Sometimes it's even used as a cheese or an egg substitute in cooking, and I'm told is really popular in vegan food, especially on tofu when you bake it. Or so I've heard. Gotta try that. Um, so the reason that it's deactivated is because eating a lot of live yeast that hasn't been cooked can mess up your digestive tract and cause proliferation throughout the body not fun. 
most of the yeast that we do consume in bread, you know, um, any sort of alcohol um, has already been cooked. So the yeast is dead. So we're fine. It's not going to harm you. Same thing if you get a little bit of yeast on your grapes or if you inhale it a little bit, it won't do anything. You're fine. But I mean, wash your produce. I don't know what to tell you. Yeah, you, you, but you'll be fine. Just wash your produce. So moving on to the second type of yeast used in cooking, it's yeast extract. And I know that sounds disgusting. It sounds like they take a little syringe and like pull out all the microbes and serve it as a juice concentrate. Breakfast with a side of yeast juice? No, thank you. I'll, I'll stick to coffee. Um, but that's basically what it is. That's what it is. It's a paste-like concentrated form of nutritional yeast that's just been added to a little bit of water. It's very similar in use to nutritional yeast, even though it's better in soups and things that like have a sauce. And unlike dry nutritional yeast, this has a very pungent umami flavor and also very popular in vegan cooking. On to the next, fresh yeast. Wow, sounds yum. Uh, this one is sold in compressed cakes resembling like a sponge. Uh, it's like a block of cheese, except the cheese is alive. This one is very perishable, so you must keep it refrigerated, and you have to use it within a few days and at most a week after purchasing. You also have to proof it before each use, no matter how new it is, which in this context means you have to check and see if it's still alive. How you do this is you dissolve a sliver of the cake into warm water, again between 110-115 degrees Fahrenheit, break it up with your fingers, um, add a small pinch of sugar, and if it starts frothing and bubbling, that means that it's alive and will work. If it doesn't bubble within like 5-10 to 10 minutes of adding the sugar, that means it's dead, and it's useless for baking purposes and any purpose in general. Fun fact, this yeast technique, if you will, uh, was very popular during the 19th century because before that, yeast only came in liquid form. So this was actually one of the first commercialized forms of yeast, which is really cool. Speaking of liquid yeast, though, that sounds delicious. Yes. Uh, this kind of yeast comes in a slurry, which is not as actually not as gross as it sounds, I promise. A slurry is a mixture of ye live yeast organisms, a small amount of flour, and water. It's very similar, but not necessarily the same as a sourdough starter, because liquid yeast is made using domesticated yeast where a sourdough starter is not. This one has a pretty good shelf life, because as long as you remember, remember to introduce a little bit more flour periodically for the yeast to feed off of, then it will stay active and multiply for a pretty damn long time but it's not super portable and it can be very picky when it comes to temperature. And last but not least, last but not yeast, I'm the queen of puns, um, instant yeast, the newest addition to the yeast family. This one's actually the newest form of yeast um, and this one is very shelf stable and can be kept in an airtight container at room temp until whatever the expiration date is. It does not require dissolving into water, and it is the most active form of yeast that's commercially available. This one is great for bread machines where you just like dump all the ingredients in and don't need it or anything. Um, and it is even sometimes referred to as bread machine yeast. But you could use it for other handmade breads as long as you accurately convert the measurements. Um, this yeast is great for anybody just starting out with bread making um, and don't want to get their hands dirty with proofing. I completely understand. Just dump it in there and go. Um, yeah, 
All of these yeasts are great options for baking breads and other yeasted foods. And I know that working with yeast can seem daunting because it can be so temperamental, but I promise it's not as hard as I or other bakers make it out to be. I always recommend starting with active dry yeast or instant yeast because it is the easiest one to get a handle on. Um, and once you understand that, all other yeasts will make a lot more sense. Just remember, yeast is a living thing, and just like taking care of plants, if you treat them with respect and keep them fed, they will treat you well in turn. And like I said earlier, you can find yeast at most grocery stores or buy it wholesale, uh, which would last you for a long, long time. If grocery stores aren't carrying it, you can buy it directly from the seller, like Red Star Yeast, or I recommend going to King Arthur Flowers' website. They have a lot of great varieties to choose from. And you can actually buy uh, yeast starters and sourdough starters that are already made um, from a lot of different places. I know King Arthur Flour has a sourdough starter that's already made. Um, you can also make gluten-free starters. That is a thing that you can do to make gluten-free bread. Um, you would just have to use a special type of gluten-free gluten flour from a special type of grain. It's really not that hard, and they operate much in the same way that regular starters do. So that is an option if you happen to be gluten-free or you're just reducing your gluten intake. You can also do that um, and still have a sourdough starter. Um, I will link the recipe to a gluten-free sourdough starter from King Arthur Flour, um, if you would like, in the episode description, because I think it's a really useful thing to know, and that way you can make gluten-free bread, which is very cool. Now, if you're interested in making leavened bread, but don't have any yeast at home or can't go out and buy it, you can capture your yeast from fruits and vegetables or from the air with a starter. This is actually what most home brewers do, and sometimes even larger breweries as well. Wild strains of yeast can be a lot more flavorful depending on your type of environment, but they can also be a lot more temperamental. Some strains will just flat out refuse to culture, or they just taste weird, but the worst that can happen is that you just get a flat loaf of bread or a nasty batch of beer. Just sanitize everything and start again. Don't eat it though. Using white wild yeast is, after all, the historical way of baking leavened bread and brewing beers and other alcohols. And it wasn't actually until very recently, about the 19th century, that microbiologists were able to domesticate yeast for commercial use. So capturing yeast in something like a sourdough starter is very historically accurate and actually not that hard. Capturing wild strains is Mostly just a waiting game that mostly requires a container, a few basic ingredients, and a lot of patience. Can you imagine how that loaf of bread must have tasted? I, I can't even begin to imagine how good it was. Mostly because, because one, as yeast ages, it picks up more flavor. Yeast and the subsequent fermentation play a huge part in not just the rising of bread, but it's also its overall flavor. And, you know, why sourdough from San Francisco tastes different from a New York bagel. We went over that. Um, and that's also why a lot of sourdough is made with a live starter. Why sourdough tastes different from a loaf that's made with dry yeast that only has to be activated once before baking. And this ancient yeast made into a starter... Um, combined with Old Kingdom ingredients and techniques would have made a bread that tastes completely different than the kind we have today. 
um, in that Smithsonian article, uh, Seamus Blackley mentions the loaf being a little bit sweeter than we would have, um, than we would expect today. Um, it's just an overall richer sourdough flavor than a most sourdough that we have today. Oh my god, I want to try it really bad, but I know that's <laughs> it's not possible. I can only look at pictures and dream. Anyway, and I want to point out that even though to the people of ancient Egypt, this would have just like been another loaf of bread. This is huge to bread nerds like me. It's not only a confirmation of what we already knew, that ancient peoples knew how to manipulate yeast and create leavened bread. It's also a tangible link to our culinary history as human beings. Not only to point out the innovation of ancient Egypt, but you realize that this baking knowledge is responsible for all of their discoveries of leavening and therefore so many different types of bread. We wouldn't have sourdough to bake in excess during lockdown. We wouldn't have French bread, baguettes, rye, anything that you can think of, we wouldn't have without the knowledge represented in this loaf. I don't know. It, it just makes you realize that everything you bake is really just a culmination of the, all of the culinary knowledge of those who came before. And it's a hallmark for everyone to come after. It's just something interesting to think about. Actually, this is how we were first able to start using yeast in baking. Um, and by we, I do mean humanity, not me specifically. <laughs> but so records show that ancient Egypt and the Middle East were likely the first places to start leavening their bread. We can speculate that when a baker was maybe making a batch of bread dough, a strain of wild yeast, either from the air or maybe a nearby uh, brewery, settled into it, which made the bread rise while in the oven. By this time, about 4500 BC, Egypt and much of the surrounding area would have already been using some sort of wild yeast to ferment their beer and wine, as that was already a staple in most diets, rich and poor, old and young. Therefore, they already had the knowledge of how yeast worked to be able to incorporate it into bread making. And ever since, breweries and bakeries have had a really symbiotic relationship over the years. All you need to do is look to Europe, where um, bakeries and breweries, bread and beer, typically share ingredients and technique and maybe even a relationship between um, a local bakery and a brewery, like sharing um, a workspace, like a building. So yeah, that is really cool. There's actually really impressive evidence of yeast being cultivated and domesticated in ancient Egypt in the archaeological record. Remains of bread-making tools and even evidence of bread itself have been found in Egypt. Interestingly, in 2019, the living remains of dormant ancient yeast were found um, in the ruins of a bakery in, uh, from the Old Kingdom, and a team led by Seamus Blackley, you might actually know as one of the inventors of the Xbox, were able to bake a beautiful loaf of bread from that ancient yeast. That is amazing. Obviously, the original strain of yeast from thousands of years ago might not have been able to survive all this time, but the yeast they found on the inside of the pot um, from, from those ruins was most likely a close relative of, if not the original strain of Old Kingdom yeast. I, I will be happy to include a link to a Smithsonian article about this in the episode notes if you want to check it out. I highly encourage it because it is 
fascinating how they were able to um, recover this yeast and then use um, Old Kingdom techniques and ingredients to recreate this loaf of bread. And of course, so many places around the world have their own ancient techniques of capturing and isolating yeast. For example, um, in Japan, there's a very specific way of capturing yeast from wild plant matter, um, certain fruits. I can also link an article about that. It's really fascinating and a really unique way of capturing yeast that yields in kind of a sweeter culture. I, I highly recommend reading all about it. It's so cool. Um, you can also look at Northern Europe, where mead has been really popular historically. Brewers would capture yeast from unfiltered honey and sometimes share with bakers as well. There are so many things that you can do with yeast. It is crazy. And if you're interested in capturing your own wild yeast for baking, brewing, or just for fun, I'll be including some more really interesting recipes and articles that I've found for you to look at. I really highly recommend taking a look because it's just so cool. Um, they're really worth a read, even if you aren't wanting to capture yeast for yourself. And of course, there are hundreds, if not thousands, of resources for this kind of thing. So if you are interested, I highly suggest you do your own research as well. If not for accuracy's sake, just because it's so interesting. But also for accuracy's sake, because I want you to be safe and not accidentally poison yourself with some bad fermentation. One last small disclaimer, though. Please do not attempt to brew beer or mead in general, and especially using fermented yeast, if you are not of the legal drinking age wherever you are. And of course, practice caution when handling and drinking things that have been highly fermented into alcohol. So be of legal age and be careful. That's, that's all I ask of you. But otherwise, go forth, do it, make beer, make bread. Please send me a picture, though. I would love to see it. Um... Or just give me your thoughts if, if you want to about formation, uh, fermentation and yeast in general. I'd love to hear from you. Um, but yeah, be safe and be of legal drinking age. It's my spiel. On that note, go. Go bake. Go bake breads and things that are yeasted and leavened and go have buns. Go say thank you to your yeasts and all that they do for us because they certainly do a lot. Uh, thank you so much for joining me on this episode of the bread <laughs> the breadcast uh, brought to you this week by a my obsession with the 70s pop disco band ABBA a caffeine addiction my insomnia and of course anchor FM I hope you enjoyed <laughs> to learn more about how to use yeast in your baking and other tips and tricks you can go to thebreadcast.com or follow me on Instagram and Twitter at breadwithbrin it's all one word Please also feel free to DM me, at me, shoot me an email if you have any questions, comments, or if you have something that you'd really like to hear me talk about on the show. I would love to hear from you. Um, Alright, so one last thing. I do have a couple of announcements. Uh, first is that starting this week, I'm going to be doing a personal challenge where I will be baking at least one thing I've never made per week. You can follow along with my progress on Instagram and Twitter. Um, as well as my blog on thebreadcast.com. The things that I'm going to be making are mostly going to be bread-related, as well as some pastries, meringues, and maybe even a cake. So it's very exciting. Again, you can follow along on my progress on Instagram and thebreadcast.com. Second thing is that coming soon, I will be doing a live baking class, a sort of bread 101, if you will. Um, 
where I will be guiding you through baking a loaf of bread. So we'll be baking a loaf of bread together if you decide to join me. Um, I'll release more details as I know them, but just be on the lookout for a date and time. So if you're interested in baking some bread, please join me. Okay, I'm done for real now, I promise. <laughs> I hope to see you there and happy baking everybody. Um, if you've if you're still here and you've made it all the way through the credits first of all thank you second of all what are you still doing here it's over go home I'm just kidding thank you for being here I'm glad you're here um, I know I said that was my last thing but there's actually one more thing that I wanted to tell you guys about I just put it at the end of the episode because it has nothing to do with bread or the broadcast um, so I just wanted to let you know that this is actually not my only podcast. I share a podcast, a weekly book club and podcast with one of my very good friends, Jenny Babish. She's hilarious. She's witty. She's a downright clown and I love her so much. Um, so we have a weekly book club and podcast called the Animorphs Book Club, where we read each one of the Animorphs books from the Animorphs books uh, series by A.K. Applegate. Um so we read each book a week, and then we talk about it um, on our podcast. These books are absolutely fantastic. They're science fiction and meant for a younger audience, like 13 to 18. Um, but they deal with some really heavy, interesting topics, such as gray morality, the consequences of war, um, uh, child soldiers, body dysmorphia. It's really cool. Um so it's a really heavy book series, but, and we talk about some really heavy topics, but also, if I do say so myself, we are hilarious, and we find a way to make it a little bit lighter, and, um, and throw some jokes in there as well, as well as many pop culture references and inside jokes between us. It's basically like a hangout book club between two people, and you're also there. If that's something that you're interested in, I <laughs> suggest that you go check us out. We're on Spotify, Anchor, Overcast, really anywhere that you get podcasts. Um, we also have a Twitter, it's at Animorphin, and we have an email, which is theanamorphsbookclub at gmail.com. Um, if you have any questions, comments, concerns, please shoot us a DM or an email. We would always love to hear from you. Um, yeah, so we are on our I think it's our fifth episode and we update every friday so you can read along with us if you would like you can find the animorphs book series online at an in an undisclosed location on the internet for free i won't tell you where because i don't want it to get taken down um, but you can also find them at your local library pretty easily if you want to read along with us um, so yeah it's it's a great uh little bit of nostalgia since these books came out in the 90s and most of most of the people that i know grew up reading these um and they're absolutely insane they're so well written it, they're really fantastic i can't recommend them highly enough 
All right. Anyway, so that was just my little spiel. Go check us out if you feel like it. If not, that is okay too. So I will see you next time either on the Animorphs Book Club podcast or on the broadcast. See you then.